It's not always easy to find the positive. You might even need to search for happiness. Sometimes, just a little inspiration makes the difference. Here, it comes from unexpected places. Welcome to the Tangential Inspiration Podcast. Hi, I'm Teresa. And I'm Amy. We are two ordinary moms looking for inspiration wherever we can find it. Wow, Teresa, we're finally in- together. <laughs> together. Woo-hoo! I know. I love it. How, how have you been? I've missed you. I know. A it's ton. the Zoom thing's um, not quite yeah, the same. No, not the same. And Craig was laughing that we, it sounded like we were at the bottom of a well. <laughs> <laughs> so now I now felt like it. But I've loved, you know, the Olympics. Yeah, that's been fun. Bringing people together. My girlfriend Diane sent me, you know, that I love Star Wars. Yeah. And I guess someone from France did a performance to dubstep Star Wars. Oh, and cool. when I went and looked it up, yeah. it was awesome, which we just did finish watching Boba Fett. And Aww. there's going to be a new series on Ahsoka. Oh, wow. That's cool. They're starting to tape for next year. <laughs> so. Yeah, all sorts of exciting stuff. I read a, a book this morning, kind of reminded me of Ida B. Wells, yeah. a young lady. Well, she's not young anymore, but Renee Hartman, she wrote this book, um, Signs of Survival, a memoir of the Holocaust. Her and her sister were in a concentration camp, Bergen-Belsen, and I guess it happened to be the camp that Anne Frank also okay. died. But um, her sister was deaf, and so she would have to sign for her sister. Aww. When they eventually were freed after the war ended, she just wanted to write. And so now she writes She writes stories of the Holocaust. And she said, it doesn't matter to me if anyone will read what I write. I have the desire to write. And I write, and that's what matters. So oh, I just love that she yeah. has a drive. It reminded me so much of Ida B. Wells. So. Right. Yeah. Lots cool. of connections. We've talked a lot about waste and recycling yeah. on our podcast. We even did the Fridays for Change. Right. Yeah, that was fun. We got was to very do that fun. again. We'll have to do that again this year. And the reason is that our current consumer culture is unsustainable. We have to make changes in not only how we market and package products, but how we deal with the waste that yeah. we create. Yeah. So today I'm going to talk about two stories that address how we can better address waste. The first one came from my mother-in-law, Barbara. It's um, from our own backyard, Eugene, Oregon, home of the Oregon Ducks, where my son's at. Ward Ricker started a junk removal service in December of 2020. He'd go to homes and businesses and remove unwanted items such as furniture, office equipment, paint cans, scrap wood, construction debris, whatever anyone had lying around that they wanted to get rid of. As he removes things from various businesses and homes, he became very aware of waste. Many of the things that he was hauling away still had life in them and could be used by someone. In some cases, he found homes for pieces of furniture or other things that could still be used. In some cases, the items were not something that were sellable or even good enough to be donated. So he started pulling items from his halls and putting things that he thought still had life in them could be of use to someone into a storage locker. By That's cool. Very and, cool. Yeah. It sounds like... like a lot of cataloging, <laughs> yes. but it's... Um, it, you a know, lot of work. Yeah, lot of for work, sure. For sure. But by April of 2020, Ward had amassed a storage locker full of items. Furniture, housewares, dishes, there's electronic stuff, tools, hardware, books. Most of the stuff I haul off I think is reusable. Let's have a place where people can take it rather than the dump. That's what I'm calling in-between waste. That's oh, what he said. Oh, yeah. So there are items that 
are good enough for people that they'll still use, but that thrift stores don't want to end up in the dump. Right. So they're not sure that people will still use them. Right. So Ward opens his storage unit up every week and allows people to take what they want for free. Every Sunday, he throws open the doors on his storage unit. The first hour is for people of limited financial means. And then after that, anyone can come. He likes to think of it as a cost-free store. And while Ward gets paid to haul away the stuff from people's homes, he makes no money off of the items, which he only gives away for free. He's also found that the people he works for are usually glad to find out that someone is getting use out of their used stuff. So it reminds me of a story of a young lady that I was reading about in a People magazine. Okay. Got your today up on my People. But while she was in medical school, she wanted to get crafty and and do that outlet. So she got flowers donated from weddings. Okay. So they used them for the weddings rather than them going into the landfill or, you know, the dump. She went and collected them and then transferred them to bouquets for people at the hospital. Oh, how sweet. So she started this this organization, I think it's called like Simple Sunflowers, but just awesome that that she can take one large table setting and turn it into five bouquets for some, you know, people sick at the hospital. Yeah, yeah, take off the dirty pill. And it's new again. I mean, yeah. So anyway, slight tangent there. Okay, (laughs) there you go. Um, Back to um, Rick Ward. He said, I'm concerned about waste issues. We're using up all our resources, wasting them so future generations won't have them. We're putting all our waste in these horrible toxic piles we call landfills, and it's just not right. We shouldn't be doing that to our children and our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren. It's just wrong. He sounds totally perfect for Eugene. <laughs> Ward Rickard hopes that he will eventually be able to turn his storage unit into an actual storefront nonprofit where people can come and shop for free. And give items a second life, keeping them out of dumps. Yeah, that's so cool. Very cool. He hopes this trend catches on and more people help, not only the environment, but other people by giving away their used things rather than taking them to the landfill. So back in episode 21, I talked about how recycled plastics were being used to build things. I saw, sorry, one more more quick tangent. Tennis shoes being made from coffee grounds. Oh, wow. They're called Rens, R-E-N-S. And they use um, some water bottles, not very many, I want to yeah. say one to six water bottles for the shoes. And then the rest of it are, um, it's coffee all ground. coffee grounds in wow. there. They're waterproof cool. and they're like $111. So, wow. right, I mean, yeah. but anyway, that might be in a future episode, but um, yeah. I was looking into them because yeah. sustainable and right. they're supposed to be super comfortable. But anyway, back to this plastic. Uh, story. India has been using plastics to make asphalt to pave roads instead of using petroleum products. In Kenya, jean she makers have been making bricks out of plastic and sand that may be used in construction. People are very aware that waste plastic is becoming a global problem. Right. And they're trying to find creative ways to use plastic waste for useful purposes and keep plastic from entering our natural environments, which is just tragic for the, the wildlife out right. there. As we discussed in episode 21, despite all of the plastic recycling programs, only about 9%, 9% of plastics get recycled. When you think that just in America, 42 million tons of plastic is generated each year, that's a very small amount. Some plastics don't recycle easily. Other traditional ways of recycling sometimes are cost prohibitive because of the sorting and cleaning that needs to be done to recycle the plastic. A Los Angeles company, Bifusion, is coming up with a solution for that. They have, uh, after years of research, come up with a way to recycle all types of plastics 
foregoing the need to sort, and it's done without harmful waste products that often occur when chemicals are used to break down plastics. Now, they can't do styrofoam, but right, all okay. the plastics. Styrofoam is a, a hard I one. Know, I know. That's why I cringe every time something comes in it. it. Yeah. yeah. The company has designed machines that use steam on compression to fuse all types of plastic into standard building blocks without any waste. The result is a solid block that's 16 inches long, 8 inches wide, and 8 inches tall. These blocks are lighter and stronger than cinder blocks. Okay. Cinder blocks. Wow. And are often used in construction. 22 pounds of plastic are put into the machine, and a 22-pound brick is the result. There's no waste. Additionally, there are no chemicals, no adhesive used to hold the bricks together. So the process is much more environmentally friendly than other means of recycling plastic. The bricks can have pegs added to them to allow them to interconnect, sort of like Legos. And okay, they kind of look what I was like thinking they, they in they my mind. Yeah. Kind of look like Legos or just like crayons kind of all melted together. Right. But anyway, kind of like uh, if other materials are going to be attached, like for instance, a shelter roof. Yeah. The first full production of this recycling machine called a blocker has been installed in LA. It can process 450 tons of plastic per year. Wow. 12 more blocker machines will be going online soon. So far, the company has recycled 103 tons of plastic with the goal of recycling 100 million tons by 2030. Boise and Tucson, Arizona are partnering with Bifusion to try to integrate a plastic recycling program that will utilize the blocker technology. They've already used blocker bricks to build a pavilion for grade schools on Kauai. Do you want to go see? Oh, that is so Um, cool. It was made out of collected marine plastics and fishing nets. Wow. How cool is that? That's so cool. So Bifusion is working on developing the process to build different shaped blocks to be used for different purposes. The company ultimately wants to have a blocker machine in every major city in order to help take plastic waste and convert it into usable building materials. So far, blocker bricks have been used to make the school pavilions, fences, retaining walls, public terraces, and bus stops. can be used for virtually any type of construction that has traditionally used cinder blocks, those concrete blocks that have two holes in them. Those are heavy. heavy. We made made a planner with cinder blocks one year. (laughs) It was backbreaking. Yes, definitely. As the technology develops, they could even be used to build even more things, possibly even buildings. So this is the type That's of innovative so cool. thinking that that we need right now. Yeah, for sure. So super awesome. cool. I just read Skinny House, a memoir by Julie L. Seeley. Julie was inspired to write this memoir after rummaging through some old photos and articles for her then elementary age son Devereaux's school project on ancestors. I love that name, Devereaux. I know. I'm curious where'd you find where'd you find this book? It, to be honest, it was through my search engine on Amazon. Oh, okay. Just trying to find something. And I do read yeah. a lot of memoirs. Right. And, and so they so they just kind of led me to it. They knew what she wanted. So, yeah, she wrote, Julie wrote a screenplay in 2011 and then uh, a memoir in 2019. I guess Julie didn't know much about her family history. Growing up, her dad didn't talk much about his family or specifically his father. And Julie always felt that there was some shame surrounding her dad's upbringing. Julie pieced together her family history and really an interesting slice of black history spanning the Great Migration, the Depression, and the Civil Rights Movement. Unfortunately, Julie's grandfather, Nathan Seeley, died when she was seven and she never met him. Mm -hmm. I know. What she did know about him was that he loved to build things with his hands. 
she knew he built Skinny House, which is a, actually a pretty famous home that has been the subject of newspaper articles, artist renderings, poems, and documentaries. All the focus has been on the architectural details and unconventional home built in 1932. However, nothing has been written about the builder, her grandfather, Nathan Seeley. I'm missing where this was. Sorry. Oh, I'm, I'm getting to it. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. <laughs> so, so typical of me. Yeah, sorry. So, um, so after digging into her past, she found a ton of details. Nathan uh, Thomas Seeley was born in 1893 in New Rochelle, New York. There you go. Okay. He was the oldest of eight children. He, he was the son of Charles G. Seeley and Anna Morse Brooks. Um, per the U.S. Census records, Charles was labeled uh, mulatto, which is a term derived from Spanish Portuguese for mule, which is truly mm. offensive mm-hmm. and derogatory word to use to describe a child of one black parent and one white parent. I didn't know that history of it. From, yeah. From, yeah. Uh, Nathan grew up fast his fa- after his father died at age 14. Mm-hmm. You know, he felt an obligation to take care of his mother and siblings and became a carpenter to help out. In 1912, when he was just 17, Nathan and his brother Willard headed to Mimaranek, um, which is about 20 miles from New York City. It's at the mouth of the Sheldrick River. And I love reading that Mimaranek is a Native American name, and it translates into the place where the sweet falls into the sea or where the fresh water falls into the salt. I just, Mm. what a beautiful description. Mm -hmm. But Mimaranek attracted famous people like James Fenmore Cooper, author of the classic Last of the Mohicans. Oh. Yeah, he was married there at Delancey Mansion. Ethel Barrymore, stage and movie actress, yes, related to Drew Barrymore, lived Ooh. on Taylor Lane. I want to do an episode on Drew Barrymore. She's got that Rebel Homemaker book, oh, okay. which is really good. Cool. And then Norman Rockwell um, uh, was oh. a famous illustrator. He mm-hmm. attended Mimarnik um, High School. Wow. So kind of some fun facts. Yeah. Julie used a ton of resources for research, including U.S. Census, newspaper articles, and then she used the Mimarnik directories a lot just to kind of fill in these mm-hmm. gaps about her family history. In 1915, the Mimarnik uh, directory, she found an entry for Nathan uh, indicating that he was a carpenter and include the abbreviation um, COL, you know, quotations, which she kind of mm-hmm. was hoping that it was for Colonel, but unfortunately it, it stood for colored. Nathan and his younger brother Willard quickly developed reputations for being dependable and local contractors, initially starting like with small jobs, installing or repairing screens, hanging doors, repainting roofs, and then the business grew. In 1918, Nathan married his wife Lillian, and they had their first child, Suge, short for sugar. Oh, that's and cute. then, yeah, super cute. And then two years later, they had a son, uh, Tommy, Tom, which is Julie's father. So life was good. In 1920, Nathan and Lillian obtained a $100 loan. <laughs> I know, which doesn't, but that was big yeah. for the, from the First National Bank of Mimarnik, which suggested he was, suggested he was credit worthy. Mm-hmm. You know, he had a steady income. He was self-employed. Even though he had to have COL next to his name. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and just to give you an idea of the wages was like $1.25 an hour. That's what he got. And his, mm-hmm. he paid his brother 87 cents. And then she said, it's interesting, I cannot give you an explanation, but she does say in 1922, thankfully, that the abbreviation for color was removed from mm. his the directory. And I, she gives no explanation, yeah. but I just included so it happened? because she, she, she included, had noticed it. Yeah, yeah, she noticed it. Well, it was something that happened. And also at that, at that, in that directory, it said that uh, Nathan was the first director at New Rochelle Construction Company. Oh. 
So then later that year, the Seeley brothers were incorporated, so which was pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Julie writes about being curious about what motivated two African American brothers to become, you know, entrepreneurs in the 1920s. Mm-hmm. I mean, and she talked to a couple things that happened. You know, World War One had just ended. The deadly uh, influenza had just wiped out, you know, five million people, and U.S. was transitioning into this kind of post-war economy. The Great Migration had begun. People were moving away from the rural areas to big cities like New York and Chicago in pursuit of higher-paying jobs um, to work at factories. Mm-hmm. Plus, consumer demand, I guess, the goods and housing led to kind of a crazy exponential growth, and unemployment was 5 to 7%. That kind of gives you the picture mm-hmm. overall. But, however, though, in the Deep South, it was far different. The Jim Crow laws were in full force. Membership to the Ku Klux Klan peaked in the 1920s. Hmm. Um, but but despite all that that headwinds there, Nathan and Willard, you know, felt like anything was possible. They dreamed of more modern lifestyle and culture that, like many Northern African Americans. Another major influence was the evolution of the Harlem Renaissance that was happening from 1918 to the mid 1930s, which mm-hmm. occurred in a New York City borough, just mm-hmm. a short train ride away from them. And it was a cultural, social, artistic movement that had been begun by American blacks. And the Seeley Brothers also subscribe to the Crisis magazine. It's the flagship publication of the NAACP. Um, And so I think all of these things really made them feel like, really, like we can do anything. So the Seeley Brothers decided to do their part by building affordable housing to allow African Americans to either rent a decent apartment or own a new home. I love this. It reminds me of... um George Bailey in It's a Wonderful Life. Right, right. (laughs) Well, yeah. And one group in particular she writes about is were in need were the um, African-American women who left families um, to take these positions in the North to be -hmm. be like maids, sleep in maids. And they would be working five to six days a week. And then they'd have one or two days off and little options. And they'd often pool their resources together just to stay in an apartment. Nathan and Willow created a brochure uh, homes for color people, which outline their mission to build affordable housing, as really as, as well as really rally the black community mm-hmm. into becoming investors as well. Nathan was ambitious; he believed in his brother and his skills, and they just really had faith in their community. Interesting, their company was one of the first um, African American owned construction companies in New York. Oh, that's awesome. After securing loans, the company was prosperous enough to hire skilled laborers such as masons, roofers, electricians. At the peak of their success, they had six Mack trucks, a secretary, and a lawyer. Wow. So uh, they were big. Yeah, they were big. Really? And, and Nathan even took courses to learn how to uh, draft blueprints. In 1926, Nathan designed and built a beautiful house on Grand Street for his wife Lillian. Mm. And Julie, Julie, excuse me, noted that all the materials, labor, mechanical appliance shall be first class. They finished the floors in the hall and living room and dining room. They were oak parquet with two walnut stripes. The lovely home had, you know, indoor plumbing, which was super uncommon for the time. Uh, so their so their children would have you know, the private bathrooms. Most of the time, still this they had outhouses. Wow. So it's pretty. It's not even something we. And in. another marvel, they had central heating, which oh, because they had fireplaces yeah, or something. So during these days, they drove a Hudson Super Six car. I guess the car the price of the car is about twelve to seventeen hundred. So by all metrics, they were successful. Mm-hmm. I mean Nathan 
And Lillian owned a home, they drove a fancy car, ran a profitable construction business, and owned real estate. They talk about their street, their street on Grand Street, that it was a mix of um, black and then a lot of Italian families. And the kids just intermixed and played and to the same school together. Nathan and Lillian were also sticklers for education and music. Every day, Suge and Tom would pick five words from the dictionary and learn how to spell them and use them in one sentence. Which I want to steal that. That's I a love great that. Idea. Yeah. And Lillian taught Tom to play um, their uh, treasured upright piano, and Suge was involved in the church choir. And then, sadly, the glory days came to an end on, uh, in October uh, uh, 1929, the Great Depression, they, where the Dow Jones fell 30, 30 points and lost 14, or $14 billion in one single day. Nathan was 36, and the financial situation was beyond his mm-hmm. control. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nathan and Willard had kind of been struggling a little prior to the crash of the stock market. Um, and he maybe had, just being overextended, maybe a little bit yeah. overextension, extend, extended, excuse me. Uh, eventually Nathan lost everything, including their beautiful home he built. You know, some weathered the depression better than others if they had some financial assistance mm-hmm. from, from family, but this was not the case for Nathan and Willard. And even before they were, before the depression, vast majority of blacks lived in p- poverty during the Depression, they were last hired and first fired. Mm. It took its toll on Lillian and the children as well. And it's unclear if Nathan purchased a sliver of the land that that grand house was on mm-hmm. or if he left it off the transfer. Needless to say, he had a 12 and a half foot by 100 foot piece of property. So <laughs> he began to salvage. half. Yeah, 12 and a half feet. So he began to salvage building materials, windows, you know, railroad ties, planks. The idea of reusing materials is not just a popular concept of today. There actually was, and I would love to do something on, read about this, a reuse mm-hmm. culture in the early part mm-hmm. of the 20th century. I had no idea. Yeah. So Nathan Kever- cleverly drew out blueprints for this skinny house. Good thing he had taken those classes. Yeah. It was 10 feet oh by 39 feet long, 27 feet high. So roughly the square mm-hmm. footage was about 550 square feet. So he really feet. built the small, the he first did. small house. He did. And here's a picture of it. You can look at it. There we go. Oh, um, it's so cute. Yeah. So Aww. the architecture is definitely unique with the two window panes. It's got two large asymmetrically mismatched windows and white gables, varying sizes. Three stories high. It's sort of a shotgun living room, kitchen, pantry, and then the back door. It had a very narrow staircase to the second floor. The basement was formed around an existing boulder, and then they painted it white. And Julie noted later in life they called it the Rock of Gibraltar, that little <laughs> that rock. But, you know, he lovingly built this yeah. home for his family, with, literally with his own two hands. And his wife, Lillian, was not happy about losing their beautiful home and resented him for it and really didn't appreciate that new skinny house. Aww. Uh, Nathan's financial, you know, troubles continued. He was unable to find work. Eventually, Lillian was forced to get a job as a maid to help make ends meet. I gotta and, say, I'd be happy living in that house today in two thousand twenty-two. Well, you know, I, you know, it's hard to understand where where she's coming from. I mean, but it's she, gorgeous. It's, it's it's really cute. Yeah, and I'm at a stage where you want to downsize. Yeah, minimizing sounds good, but. But yeah, I she was it. she was mortified. So she would sneak out each morning to go to work, so none of her neighbors would see. And uh, Nathan began drinking. Things got worse. He eventually moved out. 
And so Tom, Julie's father, would just never forgive him for leaving. And that had a huge impact on Tom, making him the, you know, he's already kind of a shy, uncomfortable young man, even Mm -hmm. more reserved. But Tom was determined to forge a different life for himself. He was a good student. He excelled at debate, even though it caused him severe anxiety. (laughs) And Nathan wanted wanted Tom to follow in his footsteps and become a carpenter. Tom wanted to go to college, and his passion was for building an education, not building houses. Uh, Tom was broke when he graduated from high school in 1938. He got a job at the local boys' club and earned enough money um, to pay for his college and help his mom out. After two years of working, he had to Lincoln University in Pennsylvania. This university had a long history of attracting academically gifted African-American men. Mm -hmm. Uh, Tom Thrive, uh, getting involved in extracurricular activities. I was cur- really curious about this thing called Rabble, which it sounds kind of like, it reminds me of like a dance-off. Mm-hmm. Like you pick up where you left off in this ca- kind of a debate <laughs> format, and you're kind of usually doing uh-huh. it out in a public uh-huh. space, which I don't know, is kind of intriguing to me. But while he was at Lincoln uh, University, a good friend introduced Tom to his eventual wife, Dee. And they began dating when she was a senior in high school. Then Tom was drafted and went off to World War II in 1943, just finishing his junior year. And this is, I thought, was really interesting, too. Tom, you know, he attended public school, elementary, middle, and high school. And the classrooms are integrated through all of that, you know. And so it's not that there wasn't racism Mm -hmm. in the Marnock, but his first direct experience was when he was uh, sent to a segregated um, boot camp. But Tom served in the Army from 1943 to 46. And did I miss where his boot camp was? They didn't say okay. in the book where his I'm boot camp cur- was. Yeah, it I just mean, said that that was his no, first, first real experience with it. Mm-hmm. Not that there wasn't. Right. But it wasn't like, you know. It hadn't affected him before Directly. That, no. After the war, Tom returned to college and graduated on um, Laude with a mathematics degree. And he earned the honor of giving a, a celebratory graduation speech. His mother attended the graduation, but sadly his father didn't. Aww. I know. And then Shame on him. Tom and Dee married in 1947, and then he got a position at Lincoln University as a mathematics professor. It wasn't until the summer after they were married, Tom took Dee to the skinny house because Tom was ashamed. Mm-hmm. You know, and the house represented such emotional trauma mm-hmm. where he lost a lot of precious things, you know. But after seeing the house, I love what his what Dee said. It's yes, it's small, but it's a house. Aww. And I think she realized the pain that that house represented. Tom went on to have this successful, you know, mathematics uh, professor career. He went uh, to work at several universities. He started working on his PhD dissertation for many years. He never completed it. It was a like an equation, is what that mm. was. But he took being a husband and a father I very seriously. Mm-hmm. I think after. His childhood. Yeah. So that never, he never finished his um, dissertation, excuse me. But Tom and Dee settled in the Baltimore area and had five children. Julie was the middle child. Julie uh, and her two brothers, Michael and Nate, were born with recessive physical traits. They all had blue eyes and blonde hair, but mm. to their parents, they were they were black. Mm-hmm. And she received a lot of uncomfortable looks from strangers growing up. Some even had the audacity to say, are you black or are you white? Oh, my As gosh. a child, can you imagine, you know, answering that? Julie talked about racism being, you know, pervasive in Baltimore in the 1960s. She talked about one daddy-daughter conversation she had uh, with her with her father, and she described that conversation as a stain like graffiti on a wall. I mean, mm. 
she said she came home from ballet class and she told her dad she wanted to be a ballerina when she grows up. And her father said, get a grip. You're not most girls and our dreams should be different because you're black. Oh my God. You have no right to want to become a ballerina. Instead, you should aspire to moralistic goals. You know, and, 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 you know, of course, Julie's heart, you know, just saying. Absolutely. And in his mind, he's trying to protect her. And prepare her. Yeah. But at the same time, crushing. Crushing her. But besides, you know, the frank advice he'd he'd often give, you know, Julie described her childhood and um, upbringing is is really good. And her parents really instilled a good work ethic. She had super fond memories of going and visiting the skinny house just over the holidays and summer vacations. To her and her siblings, it was a magical place. Mm -hmm. They enjoyed the time with um, their grandmother. Tom's father, Nathan Seeley, died in, in 1962. So... The um, they never mended their relationship. He wasn't really part of their the kids' upbringing mm-hmm. at all. That's too bad. It's really too bad. And that fractured relationship really impacted Tom and how he interacted with his own children. Mm-hmm. Julie's older brother Nate graduated from MIT in 1970, which was huge because at the time there's less than three percent of the 1500 were minorities in that graduating class. And, you know, as if history is repeating itself, Tom didn't attend um, his son's graduation Aww. or later when he was when um, when he received his uh, Ph.D. from Stanford. Nate, he mm-hmm. didn't go to that either. So, so sad. I know. Or and I, you know, I was thinking I know. And I've often was have I been walking and thinking about that. I kind of felt that way myself. But then I realized, you know, for the time period, you mm-hmm. know, we are so we have so many resources mm-hmm. on relationships mm-hmm. and we have podcasts and we have talk shows and we have books mm-hmm. I, I mean when you're talking about the 60s and 70s I don't think I don't think people were as aware of conversations like that no. I don't I mean I'm just thinking and maybe the, they didn't think it was a big deal and maybe yeah. I just don't think relationship has such been yeah. such a thing in I think in our generation yeah. but I, I just think that there it was just like I don't think it was happening I don't know just my just breaks my heart, yeah. though, that both of those graduations, you yeah, or those accomplishments. You know, however, though, I just, I love reading this, though. In 1984, one of Julie's parents' last visits with Tom's mother, Lillian, at the skinny house, Julie's, Julie's mom found a note that was pinned in one of the folds of the curtains that Lillian had put, Lillian had put there, and it said, to anyone, I was happy here. And I think that note really speaks to her loneliness of living there, but also speaks to the happiness that she found after all, you know, that Nathan had built that house for her, that she Mm -hmm. did find some happiness there. So at 91, Lillian was unable to live in the skinny house alone. Her health was deteriorating. As a result, they had to sell it. They only sold it for Mm. $30,000. And that was to cover the nursing bills. But years later... January 2015, um, the New York State Office of Parks and Recreation Historic Preservation, along with Julie, they worked to secure the um, skinny house as a spot on the National Register of Historic Places, which is super cool. Cool. And Julie hopes to return the ownership back to the Seeley family at some point, to Mm -hmm. restore it and to transfer it into a nonprofit for the next generation of history lovers. 
And it's neat to re- to, that I read that part of her book, part of the proceeds, um, go to charitable donations for STEM, music, education programs, historical societies, and colleges that are dear to the Seely family. Good. And I, I'm just grateful for, for her writing this memoir. It's giving us a piece of American history that just might be overlooked. Yeah. And I admi- well, like I said, I had never heard of this at all, and so well, I'm sure I'm not alone. Yeah, and I just admire Nathan's entrepreneurial spirit, building affordable homes during a time when home ownership was unattainable for yeah. most, let alone a black man. Yeah. And I just love his ingenuity in building these homes, especially the skinny house, um, which is evident in every detail. And... It's also just a remarkable story of this family fractured by the depression, which I mean, yeah. I feel like I've done, we've done a lot of stories yeah. about people in the depression, yeah. but I think that, but, but despite that and the strained relationship between father and son, it propelled Tom to be, you know, a loving husband, a father, successful college professor and the legacy. Um, Julie went on and she went to Wellesley, Wellesley for undergraduate. She's mm. um, went to Tufts. I believe, for her um, medical degree mm-hmm. and her son's in college. I mean, I just look at that legacy of education that was instilled in the family, too. I But I just touched on some of the details of this. Yeah. This book is totally. really worth reading and um, investing your time yeah, it looks in it. good. I've never heard of it, so that was fun. It's not the size of your house that matters. What matters is the size of the heart and soul you put into the house to make it your home. The Skinny House of Lessons. I saw KGW sponsored series Expressions in Black. They're short documentaries, about 10 minutes Mm -hmm. uh, long, that take viewers on this unfiltered kind of authentic journey of an individual here in Portland, Oregon's black community. So was this online or was this? Um, I just, I I saw, I actually watched the episode, but you can go and get it on demand. Okay. Okay. Um, There's a whole bunch of them. Mm -hmm. There's, I think, two seasons. The one that caught my eye was season two, episode three on Jocelyn Rice. She's a local clothing designer. Mm. She's born in Eugene, but was raised in the Midwest. She's the eldest of five girls. Jocelyn says her mom was a single parent, nurtured, elevated, empowered, protected them all by holding down multiple jobs, going to school to become an oncology nurse. So, oh, my goodness. Yeah. She, what a, five kids? Five kids. Wow. So I'm blown away by that. Yeah. But now back in Portland, Jocelyn is also a single parent. And after a decade working for companies like Columbia and Nike, she decided to launch her her own line called Black Earth United. Her mission is to advocate for black and brown women in the outdoors industry Uh and informing of modern designs and racial equity. She wants to honor and celebrate black history by designing products that represent the past and possibly encourage some conversation. Mm-hmm. She uses clothing design as a way to tell stories about her community, something that is meaningful. She wants to pay homage to her culture. Uh, she loves reading about black history in the outdoors. An example of this, Jocelyn designed an elegant pair of blue herringbone coveralls personalized with her own art entitled Jim Crow Traveling Kit. The inspiration came from tra- from travelers during that time period would wear coveralls while traveling on the trains to protect their nice clothing mm-hmm. from being spit on by train conductors and business mm-hmm. owners. Uh, in Jocelyn's words, these overalls provided armor that gave people a chance to arrive at their destination unscathed. Not only does she design clothes, she does um, public speaking in high schools and universities, just expressing her passion, you know, for mm-hmm. designing. And I love that she incorporates history with history that. to it. Yeah, yeah I, it's 
they're, they're really cool looking, um, which she did. And the latest projects um, combine her love of the outdoors and um, the BIPOC uh, community. She is working uh, to bring focus of diversity uh, and representation in the outdoor communities. Beyond her uh, design, she really has a desire to change the way, you know, black and brown women move up the corporate ladder specifically in, in the outdoor industry. That's mm-hmm. where her focus is. But finally, I love that she draws upon the author, uh, Toni Morrison, um, for, she has this quote and, um, written down that from, this is Toni Morrison, you are the best thing. Go get your dreams, sis. I just love this woman's passion and her heart. Um, and that she's in our neck of the woods. Our neck of the woods. You may have a fresh start any moment you choose. For this thing we call failure is not the falling down, but the staying down. Mary Pickford. Thanks for listening to Tangential Inspiration. We really want to hear from you. Email us your comments or story suggestions at tangentialinspiration at gmail.com or leave a comment on our website, tangentialinspiration.com. Our website has all our podcast episodes, show notes, stories, follow-ups, and links to websites and books we talk about. Like and subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app, and you can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Have a great week.